found my bill. My son Tony was commenting on sportscasts, a satellite station that was seen only in public houses. And um, previous to that, I had tried several public houses and they were all very noisy. So I happened to be driving by the Manhattan in Palmer's Green and they had a sign outside uh, displayed saying that they showed the sportscasts. I phoned the Manhattan and I spoke to Mick and um, he confirmed that I could go there and I'd be very welcome. So Dolores came in and uh, she says, uh, I would you like to pawn the football? I said yes, because I'd like to watch it anyway. Because she said her son just the broadcasting on it. Oh, I said, that'd be nice. Definitely, I'll put it on. And Devon White replacing the injured Les Ferdinand, Nat his second with a town block header before Simon Barker nodded the third. So I was on me half seven break and uh, I'd already had the football on and uh, I sat down and she said, I hope you don't mind, but I'm not trying to chat you up. So I sat down and I looked down and watched the football. She said, no problem. So we're chatting up and I chatting away there and... I said, well, where do you come from? She says, oh, Dublin. And I said, well, I was read up in... I was born in Dublin, but uh, I was read up in Donegal. But I said, I never found my parents. It's funny, at the, I said, it's funny, I'm, uh, at the moment I'm trying to find out where my parents is. He went upstairs to his residential quarters in the Manhattan and came down with a letter from the adoption board that he had received and they uh, gave him some brief outline of his history and what had happened to him. So I said, well, I have a sister in Dublin. She'd be very uh, interested in helping you, I'm sure, if I asked her. So he said, fine. He said, would you do that? And I said, fine, yes, of course I will. And I said, be a great help because I said I'm not good at writing really or finding out things. She says, well, show me the few letters. So I went upstairs and brought down the letters and I showed her and she says, I'll do the best as I can. And from then to there on, Dolores found out all the things about me. And uh, Deirdre, her sister, which is in Dublin, she found out all all the situations. So it was great, just nice ladies to, find, to help me out all that period. It only took them a year, so it did. And they found out all about my mother and father. They did tell him that um, he w was... Um, two years old when he was went into care on the 27th of November 1943 into St. Patrick's home and um, in, on the 7th of October 1946 he was transferred to St. Philomena's and um, they also told him 
that he was baptized in the um, pro-cathedral and um, they gave him the age of his parents so that was very valuable because we knew then uh, the year they were born uh, more or less and it helped us to trace his their birth certificates the the information they gave was that his father uh, was 22 and his mother was 20 when Mick was born. His father, Michael, was the son of Patrick and Martha O'Keefe, Nee Byrne, and both of whom were dead by the time that Michael was born. Your mother was daughter of James and Honor Mahan, Nee Gallagher. Again, both her parents were dead by the time you were born. I was sent to St. Patrick's home, and then I was sent on to St. Philemon's home, from there, then, I was sent down to Donegal, so I was... Kathleen Mahan, uh, at the time Michael was born, she was uh, working in um, an ice cream parlour in O'Connell Street, and she, when she was taken ill, she had... The social welfare people visited her and said that they would look after Michael while she was ill. I had to go into hospital, and um, the, uh, what you call them then, what they call welfare here now, so they said they would look after him till I come out. So, of course, I, I was in there, I think, for about four weeks or something. So when I come out, I went to get him, and uh, they said he wasn't there. So naturally, I wanted to know what it was all about and where he was. And they said he was better off, he was well looked after, and uh, it would give me a chance to get on with my life. But I didn't want that. I wanted him. When she went to them after she came out from hospital, they said she could, he, he, he was gone and she would never see him again. All I can remember is the nuns used to throw sweets on the floor and we'd all run and catch them, and that's all the bits I remember of the... the presumably it was the orphaning place then. She made several attempts after that time to uh, find him, but uh, they would never tell her where he was. They probably did think that, like, with me trying to work and that, that I wouldn't have been able to, you know, look after him which I thought at the time, well, maybe, maybe it was right. But I thought, well, there was nothing I could do then. But as I said then, you know, a few years after that, I sat thinking and I thought, well, I'll try, and, I'll try again now and see. Even though she'd never signed any papers to give him up, she, uh, in fact, she, she now says she never had any intention of, of giving him up. She wanted to look after him, but uh, the welfare people took it upon themselves to uh, keep Mick, and it was their responsibility to look after him, which they didn't do. (laughs) 
Well, boarded out was a term they gave for uh, children who were, uh, I think the, the term would be fostered today. It was for children who weren't going to be adopted for one reason or another, they couldn't be adopted. Perhaps usually the reason was because their mother hadn't signed them over for adoption. And so those children were fostered out to various families. And um, it appears from Mick's story that he later related to me that uh, they weren't very fussy about who they'd sent those children to because there didn't appear to be any proper checking procedure on uh, the people that he was sent to, otherwise he wouldn't have been so cruelly treated. I was sent to Donegal to be reared up on a farm and uh, presumably I was told, I thought I was my parents at the time and then I started being working as a slave from I was there. So f- it was all right for a couple of months and then the things started to begin to happen. I used to have to go to the well but a mile and a half down the road to carry water and the man that I thought was my father was about six foot. And I used to have to wear his Wellington boots to catch, get to buckets of water. And he used to cut me around the legs. And uh, if I spilt a drop, I'd have to, uh, to give me an ash plant. And I'd have to go back again and get another two buckets of water. And then come back. And then, that's before school. Then come back, get dressed for school. And then straight to school. Maybe maybe a cup of tea and a sandwich or something. And then I'd go to school, come back in the... finish school, and then made change. And then they say, you have to go and get a bag of turf. And that's about a couple of miles up the road. Hail, rain or snow, I used to have to go up and I'd have maybe no food. I used to go and get a bag of turf. And halfway, I'd come out of the bog, I'd go down halfway past a house and I'd go in I used to say to a woman uh, I'm really hungry this woman used to come and give me a cup of tea and something to eat without them knowing because if they knew it, I'd get an awful hiding so I'd come back and then it might be evening time I'd have to go and milk get, we only used to keep one cow and a few cattle but I'd have to go and milk the cow and then cleaned the bear out, which is the cow shed, and maybe the horse stable. We used to keep one horse, do all of that. Then time to go and have a wash. I'd have to go outside in the cold tub and wash myself with soap and water. And then it was time to go to bed. But anyway, after a period of time, I started wetting the bed. I don't know why, but I started wetting the bed. Then I'd get up in the morning, she'd find the bed wet. And then she would um, take me outside. And as my father thought was, he'd take me outside too and put me in a cold tub and throw cold water over me and hit me with the ash plant. He would hit me with the ash plant a few times for wetting the bed anywhere in the part of the body. Used to throw cold water, could be hail, winter or snow. And it'd be all, and then I'd be go back and then get ready for school. They would make sure there was no marks on my legs, obvious, because otherwise people would have seen him. So I used to be crying. Then I'd have to go to school and then back to square one, do the same thing day in, day out. And I went to bed for quite a while. 
And then they thought this would stop me. They would put nettles in the bed. So I used to, I got stung first. So I done. I got the quilt and lay on top of the quilt. But I still wet that. So done the same thing. Throw me out in the morning naked. And so one night I thought, well, I was getting fed up with this, you know, getting beaten up all the time. I went and got a thread and tied my private part. Stopped me from wetting the bed. So in the morning I was all swollen up and they happened to see it because they came in and checked the bed was all dry and they seen it was all swollen up. So they beat me up for that. So it carried on for immunity years till I stopped wetting the bed. But I don't know why that was. I wet the bed till I was about 10, I think, because must have been I wasn't well enough. Anyway, I carried on for years till I got older and then I uh, started running away. I used to sleep in the, the bayer where the cows was and she wouldn't know where I was. But I was only in the bayer to keep myself warm. Then I'd run down to, I went to some people's stay down in Belik, it was called, nearly Belik. And I stayed for six or seven weeks there but I think they sent me back because she was looking for me. So I'd go back to my mother again. So I sneaked out of the house early one morning and I waited for the coach and I got on the coach to Dublin. Someone told me there's a hostel down there and I had a couple of bob left and that was a half crown and they told me where the hospital was the next day to go to. So I went to the hospital where I remembered being treated that time. So, and they point me to an office. So I went there and the man says, what happened to you? I said, well, I've run away. I can't handle it anymore. He says, uh, would you like to work? I said, yeah. He says, you wouldn't, would you like to work for priest or something else? Oh, I said, I wouldn't mind working for priest. And uh, he says, OK, then we'll be taking you away in a couple of days' time. So he took me to a place called the Carmelite Fathers, Whitefriars Street, then brought me in and then talked to the prior there and uh, OK, and then left me out there onwards. It was only when he was about 16 years of age that the priests appeared to have uh, told him that uh, he wasn't their child at all, that he had parents. And uh, it was at that age then that he decided to start looking for his mother. And uh, he just came up against a brick wall. He couldn't seem to get much headway. Uh, the priests apparently seemed to think uh, that it wouldn't be a good idea for him to find out who his parents were. They said that he would live to regret it if he found out. But um, he still uh, longed to find out what, uh, why he had been put into care at two years of age. It just didn't make sense to him that somebody would have kept him for two years and then given him up. I found out through the priest place where I worked at Camelot Fathers, uh, he must he must have went to look for my birth certificate, got, got my birth certificate. And he says, uh, I said, well, uh, were they not my real parents? He says, no, your real parents, are just the name's on that certificate. But as he must have checked up and he says, uh, you'd regret it for the rest of your life if you find out what, what happened to them. But he And I thought, well, OK, I won't bother. But then I looked at the birth certificate, I see the name, 
on the birth certificate and address. It said 39 North Great Yarder Street. Well, I wasn't far from the Carmelite Fathers, so I thought, well, I'll go behind his back, which maybe I shouldn't have done, but I did. And I went down to the 39 North Great Yarder Street, and I thought, well, see who the, if my parents was there. So I knocked on the door, and this lady came out and said, oh, there's a, a name, O'Keefe here. She says, no, there's never O'Keefe here. And then I give the name, Maher. She says, oh, no, there's no Maher here either. She says, there's never uh, O'Keefe's or Maher's here. I said, that's odd. I said, look at this thing, address. That's 39 North Great George Street. My name and my parents are on there. And you said, there's no. She says, no. I said, that's odd. So I left to go then. Maher was on the, or maiden name was on the birth certificate. And then Kathleen O'Keefe. And my my name was Mike O'Keefe. And my father seemed to call me Mike O'Keefe. And then it put down North 39 North Great George Street. He left Dublin um, with a woman that he'd met at a dance in Dublin. She um, apparently had connections in England and she went there first and after some time she wrote to Michael and asked him if he would like to join her in London and which he did and um, sometime after that they were married and had he has a, a two sons and a daughter yeah apparently his mother was uh, working uh, she after she came out and Michael was taken from her she went to work in the Isle of Man and then she moved from there to London and she got married to um, a Mr Pender and had three sons and a daughter. Um, his mother had completely, um, after various uh, attempts to find him, had completely given up and um, she had no idea where he was or the fact that he was in London and that she, he was within easy reach of her all these years. She, she had no idea about that at all. When uh, Michael's mother met Mick O'Keefe, he was already married and had a baby daughter, Rita. So Dolores was listening and I was telling the story and she says, well, I have a sister in Dublin. You would mind if we'd like to give you a hand? I said, it'd be a great help because I said I'm not good at writing really or finding out things. She says, well, show me the few letters. So I went upstairs and brought down the letters and I showed her and she says, I'll do the best as I can. And from then to there on, Dolores found out all the things about me. I contacted my sister she, and she uh, went to the records office and got um, a copy of his parents' birth certificates and also a copy of the marriage certificate. And with that information, I contacted the Irish Centre and they contacted the uh, social security officers in Dublin who gave the information that um, his father had died and um, I also got the uh, last known address of his father 
and um, my sister Derda went to the address and it was there that she met Rita. I think it was on a Thursday evening. I had a good few in the house, my daughters and their kids. And a knock came to the door. And it was Deirdre. And she asked, did uh, Michael O'Keefe live here at any time? That was my father. And I was a bit dodgy about her, to be honest with you. And I said, uh, well, I'd like to hear more about it. Like, why would you want to know anything about Michael O'Keefe? And she went on for a while. She told me a lot about my father, that he was reared in Artain. He was a trumpet player. And she told me so much that I knew then that uh, it was somebody must have known him very well to know all this about him. So then she up and told me that it was a brother over in London was trying to get in touch with his family. And I knew straight away this had to be the brother I was thinking about. It was only when I got older I started to think about it a lot more. And um, just a week before Deirdre got in touch with me about Michael, I saw this man in the village and I stopped the man and asked him, was his name O'Keefe? And he said no. And the reason I stopped him was he looked so like my father. And I came all the way home from the village in floods of tears thinking maybe he was adopted at the time and didn't know maybe his name was changed. But it was after that that everything happened. It was like a premonition or something. And I invited her in and, oh, there was great rumpus in the house, all the kids saying, oh, mother, isn't this fabulous? You know, they were all delighted about it. And it didn't hit me till after she was gone. The whole lot of it reacted and the tears and oh God, what will you be like? And it was just unbelievable, really. Then Deirdre wrote, uh, rang Dolores and told Dolores and then uh, told her the phone number for me to get in touch. And then Dolores came the evening, I was going to get in touch and I was very emotional. I couldn't, I said hello and I couldn't speak, so I had to give the phone over to Dolores to speak to Rita for couple of minutes that I got my emotions back to square one again. Michael rang and he said, hello, sister. And I said, hello, brother. And I think he just had to get off the phone then. It was too much for him, really. So it went from there that I was trying to find out a lot for him to get him addresses and to find his mother because I kind of thought she was still alive. I wasn't too sure, but I thought she was. And after that, he found his mother and the rest of his family, which was great for Michael. It was through Rita that we got the name Pender, which was instrumental in finding her um, through the phone directory, which was uh, a chance, I suppose, in a million, but... Uh, there weren't, there were only about 28 penders in the London phone book, so um, the chances were that uh, it was going to be one of, one of them was going to be one of her children. On about the 8th 
telephone call, um, I asked the gentleman who answered the phone if he, if his mother would happen to have been called Ma'am, and he said yes, she was. So I said, well, I've got a friend, Michael O'Keefe, who seems to think that she's his mother, and he was a bit obviously taken aback by this, and he said to me, um, uh, well. He said, maybe she won't want to see him. And he said, I'll have to have a family conference to find out if we're prepared to tell her because she's not in very good health. So they, um, that evening, um, he actually went down to the Manhattan and met up with Mick and he was very, very friendly. And... Uh, arranged for a meeting between Mick and his mother, Kathleen. She was in Basildon. I wouldn't believe it. It's only about, uh, say, 20 miles up the road from me. And we were shocked. Couldn't believe it. It was... Um, I was going up to my son's uh, up in London, and it was on Friday, and I went up, and uh, then John and Brian said, Mum, I've got something to tell you. I said, what, because they never, they, they, they wouldn't tell me things, because they think, they know what I am for worrying. So I said, what, I said, I hope it's nothing bad. Well, they said, no, it's not bad. It's just that you might, you know, you might get shock. Well, I said, tell me then. <coughs> so then they told me, and I, I didn't say nothing. I just sat, I was uh, speechless, that's the word for it. Speechless, and they thought I'd gone into a state of shock. <laughs> and they said, Ma'am, are you all right? And I said, Yeah. I said, I don't believe it. Well, of course, they had went out to get a small brandy in case I come into shock, but by the time I come, they come back, I didn't need it. <laughs> and they said, Take a drop anyway. So on the Friday, about six o'clock, I got a phone call. And his brain on the phone, and she said, uh, your, "Your mother's here, or her mother's here, and uh, would you like to speak to her?" I said, "Yes." And I said, oh, "Hello, mum." I said straight away. She says, "Hello, Michael," and I said, "I don't know what to say." She says, "I don't know what to say." So what we said, uh, "When would you like to see me?" Which I said, "Well, Sunday would be the best day because it's quiet on a Sunday." And she says, you wouldn't guess, it's my birthday. I'd be 72. I said, that's unbelievable, isn't it? So I said, OK, we leave it for Sunday, 1 o'clock. So when I was finished off the phone, I ran over the shop and got my first birthday card for her after 50 years. Couldn't believe it. It was the first birthday I met her on. It was my birthday on the Sunday, and um, he came up to my son's place, Brian, and... Uh, we didn't really, it was so emotional we couldn't say anything to one another. I, I think I was still in a bit of shock, really, after all the years. And then I see my mother standing on the middle of the floor. We were just went over and we froze for a good ten minutes with our arms around each other. We couldn't say a word. Uh, she, went, she went down to her daughter's in Clacton and her daughter, Debbie, my sister, told me she was crying most of the day. I think it's obvious the emotion just coming out of... And she was obviously could have been crying with happiness, you know. And it's, she's all right ever since now. She's 
she looks forward to seeing me most Tuesdays, every Tuesdays. I go and see her every week. Yeah. And her birthday's coming up now next this month, eleventh of October, she'll be seventy three. So I'll be in my second time seeing her on her birthday. Uh, I often wondered like uh, who he did because he, he did look like his father when he was young. But then like when seeing him then I thought, well, no, he doesn't look, he, he has his ways. My father, I never knew about it, my father either, but um, he was, I found out, he was only, where I was working, is down Palmer's Green and Stoke Newton, and it's only four miles down the road. And he only died four years ago, and I could not believe it, he was only down the road, he could have come into the pub I was working, I would never have known it. I found my bill. On Blueberry Hill On Blueberry Hill When I found you It later transpired that Mick's father had been uh, brought up in Artain and uh, had learned the trumpet there and was uh, quite a good musician. Among the tunes that are on tape um, are Cockles and Muscles, Biddy Mulligan, Little Brown Jug, Blueberry Hill, I Did It My Way, Georgia. And uh, from what we hear today, um, he was a remarkable trumpet player, uh, a first-class jazz trumpeter. Well, as far as I know... My father was married to my mother and he met this other woman, which was Michael's mother, Kathleen Mann. And they were, I don't know what way it was, whether he was left my mother or still with her or he was with this other woman on the side. I haven't a clue. I really don't know. But um, he came back to my mother after all this happened and she was willing to take him back and... Still didn't work out for them because they were long. Well, they were married a good few years, but he left again and went off to London and met back with Michael's mother. So it had to be something in that. I felt because I don't think my parents ever really got on. But the saddest thing was that Michael was took away. Really, I just find it very hard to understand why it happened or how his mother could do nothing about it. I just couldn't understand it. I still can't. Though I believe they did do those things in those days. She said it, that she tried everything in her power and they said no, that Michael would be better off the way he was. But I can understand now, being an unmarried mother in those days, it was very, very hard. I mean, it was 50 years ago. It's not like it is today. You can do something about it. But then... I don't think you could do anything in those times, especially my father being married. It was an awful lot worse. So they felt it was best. Though two years she had him for, that's what baffles me. This two year, I cannot understand it. Was there nobody around that would have took him while she was in hospital? I cannot never understand that bit.
yeah, well, I mean, I was living there as well. Oh, it wasn't what you meant. I think it was maybe one of the dance halls. Not the way girls go out together, and we used to go to dances. And I just met him at one of these places, that was it. And then wherever he'd be playing, he'd say, I'll see you tomorrow night and go and such a place. And it just went on from that. That That's how it all started. We just used to go around place to place with him. It didn't cost me to get in then, because he was going with him. <laughs> I, I, di I didn't have my own place then, naturally, in single. I, I was only staying with friends at the time. And I suppose that was a lot of the reason that they wouldn't let me keep Michael. They thought, like, you know, he might have been looked at. He would have been, but probably that's what they thought. They didn't say at the time. But, I mean, I was only young myself then. But Michael's 52, isn't he, now? So uh, I think I must have been only probably 20 or something like that, something in around that. Well, he was a character in his own right. But I still feel now he was a very selfish man. Because he was, well, I feel he was all for himself. Though I would never let anybody else say that about him. I'm just saying it myself. But he had a heart of gold. He was a very good-natured person. And he kind of pleased everybody. You know, he was that type, pleasing people all the time. I often do think, was it his background? You know, being reared in Artane and that. God knows what kind of a upbringing he had. His parents died when he was young, and himself and his sister were put in... She was, I don't know where she would have went, but he was put into Artane, and that's where he learned the trumpet and that. So he was straight out of Artane into marriage, so... He, mm. There was a lot there that he seemed to be very... Um, well, not very mature, really. Descriptions I have of him, that he was a very dapper man. He he liked to dress well and look well. He always uh, turned himself out as if he were going on stage. People that I've spoken to have described him as always being smartly dressed and uh, immaculately turned out complete with his beloved trumpet under his arm. Oh, what? When we come out, I used to say, you're worse than a woman. He used to go round his shops with his suits, shoes. And the most places where he, oh, he used to get the best stuff was the Jewish tailors. That's the truth. Yeah. That, yes, it always... There was one that happened in Stamford Hill. I don't know whether it's still there or not. That's where he used to get his suits and his jackets and all from. Oh, he was always very smart, but he used to go up like that, you know. Then when he used to go anywhere, he used to wear the evening dress, you know, black suits, the bowls and the frilly fronts and all that kind of stuff, yeah. He was very smart, yeah. Played brilliant tunes now. I mean, he was a great friend of uh, Victor Prowse, Frankie Dorman. Sonny knows, like he knew them all. Sonny would say, like, I often met him at his gigs and he'd say, God, I knew your father well. He was the hardest ticket I ever met in my life. Like, spend a few bob the minute he gets it and the other guys would be clever, go home and give it to the wives. My father wasn't that tired. He'd spend it all and suffer the consequences, don't you know that way? But yeah, he played a lot of tunes. Blueberry Hill. I did it my way. A lot of the old ones as well, the real oldies. 
But it was very, it was very good, I thought. But he's just too foolish all his life. Very foolish man. I found my bill on Blueberry Hill. On Blueberry Hill. When I found you, the moon stood still. On Blueberry Hill. And it wasn't until my dream come true. He left my mother and he went off to London to his sister. But then he met up with Kathleen. It wasn't very long before he met up with her and where her kids with her. She was married to some other man in between and he had died. She was left with kids very small. I mean, her daughter, Kathleen's daughter, she treated my father more like a father to her than her own father ever was. So there's something to be said for that. You know, really, if the family, the kids loved him, so... Well, I was married at the time with three children when he left, but I was only 21. My brother was about 17. But he never ever got in touch when he left. I mean, he didn't get in touch with us. I, my mother really felt very sad about that. She said, I don't mind him leaving, but he could have kept in touch with his children. I often used to say how sad she looked. Now I know how sad she must have been. So I find it very hard to forgive my father for what he done on her. Because when my mother died, you see, I got in touch with my father and he came home for a funeral. And after that, he kept in touch with me and my brother. And uh, then he brought her home on a few holidays and I met her two youngest boys. They were lovely boys, very good-mannered boys. They used to stay here. I accepted her for my father's sake. But I didn't know the full story at that time, nothing really. I really didn't know what was going on in the years before that. And still, from I was a kid, I had visions that I met this woman somewhere before when I seen I, I knew, I said, this woman is like a woman. I was, in, was told she was my aunt at one time. And, you know, a little flashes used to go through my head. So I suppose he must have been seeing her. And he brought me maybe to places, and at the time I had no sense, didn't know any different. So maybe she was the woman he should have married, I do often think, you know, and it just didn't happen that way, it was too late. He was married already when this all happened. But there must be lots of Miko Keefs out there who've had the same treatment and um, his story is appalling very very sad to think that a child could have been treated in such a manner when I was two I was taken away by the welfare people but there you are they were the kind of people that took all my 50 years away from, from me the welfare people and then we get on like I was in fire now 
So we do. Thanks to Deirdre and Dolores for finding all them things for me. Otherwise, without them, I would never... I'd be still on my own. I didn't realise I'd have so big of a family. I was always on my own all my life. Ended up about 30 or 40 of a family now. Well, you know, the authorities, sometimes you can't beat them, even today. I mean, they're not quite as bad, I suppose. But in them days, they were very strict on things, as you know. I thought to myself, well, what can I do? I am bitter with the social welfare way they done... Uh, they let this go on and one doesn't know that they know half of this going on and they just swept it under the carpet. After such a hard life, it's difficult to understand how he got through it all. He's a very God-fearing man and um, I think it's, it was his faith in God that helped him to overcome all this and perhaps this is also his reward for being such a good and kind man. So I certainly could see it happening today if people become lax and careless in carrying out their duties and if the authorities take the responsibility of looking after children then they should really see it through and not allow this to ever happen again to any human being. big money and transform your home with new appliances now at menards we offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today check out top appliance brands including kitchenaid maytag whirlpool amana and criterion upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at menards shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at menards.com save big 